Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In the wake of World War II, Japan adopted a new constitution, including Article 9, the general gist of which was that Japan aspires to international peace and should not have an army. Here to discuss the lasting impact of this article, the rise of Japanese pacifism, and what a recent 2014 reinterpretation could do to the Japanese military action is Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Welcome to you, Nick. Thanks, Matt. Nick, what were the implications of Article 9? Well, Article 9 of the Constitution, which was enacted in 1947, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, did a number of things. Externally, it said very clearly to the countries of East Asia, Japan is down and it's not coming back up. Japanese militarism is not going to come back because it's enshrined in the legal edifice of post-occupation Japan. Internally, it said also militarism is not coming back, i.e. that group that sort of seized power from a democratic Japan in the 30s was not going to be in a position ever to return. But it also allowed Japan and, and really created a culture in Japan of saying never again, you know, that we suffered for what we did. The politics of all of that, which we've talked about in a previous podcast, is slightly fraught. But essentially, the Japanese population had inflicted on them through the firebombings of Tokyo, Kyoto, the atomic bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, utter devastation. Plus, they'd been living in privation under rationing and this sort of thing for you know, at least five or six years. So that so a that, lot of fatigue had set in? Uh, I mean, this is a very, very serious war-weary nation. Mm. Um, you know, what this represented was an ability to turn your back on all of that. And then, of course, the other thing, and this is kind of controversial, is that it allowed the creation of the, the idea that the Second World War was not the fault of the Japanese people. The Japanese people, by embracing pacifism, could say... What happened in the Second World War was because a militarist clique took over and kind of fooled us and gulled us into this conflict that we ordinarily wouldn't have had any bar of, but because they somehow fooled us into all of this, that that occurred. And Article 9 allows us to go, we were victims. And in the embrace of pacifism that, that occurred very, very quickly, it must be said, um, allowed the Japanese people to sort of, what the Chinese would say is the Japanese people to hide away from their responsibilities. So you've got, what, about 70-odd years that have followed since, so about three generations. In the grand scheme of things, it really isn't a long time, but it seems to be a very imprinted ideal of what it is to be Japan now. It's to be very pacifist. The remarkable thing about the sort of pacifist sentimentality, if you want to call it that, was how quickly it grabbed hold in Japan. So that in 1961, the Japanese and the Americans signed a security treaty, which was sort of mutual, fairly typical kind of mutual security treaty. It was massively controversial. You know, hundreds of thousands of people are on the street. This is 15 years after the Second World War. Mm. So this idea is, is very rapidly becomes hugely entrenched in Japanese culture. It's all encompassing. It's across the political spectrum. The far right doesn't like it, but for... Certainly, the bulk of the post-war period, they, they are seriously marginal figures in the ones and two, you know, single-digit percent of the electorate at best, and so it becomes this idea. And certainly for children growing up in Japan today, the idea of being a unique country—not just kind of every country is different—but we're unique because a, we've been attacked with atomic weaponry, only country to have suffered from that, and b, we're the only country that has a constitution that forbids the use of force. 
And so this sense of identity of what it means to be Japanese is pretty pretty deeply rooted. So how can the new legislation reinterpret Article 9 then? Ah, so Article 9 is, is a funny one because if you read it and you look at it and it says very blankly, the right of belligerency is forbidden, that war fighting material will never be allowed to be held. And then you look at Japan's defence budget, it's the fourth or fifth largest defence budget in the world, it's in Asia after the US, the most sophisticated military in the region. So how do you reconcile you know, that big, capable fighting force with a constitution that says you can't have any of this stuff? And the way they do it is essentially to reinterpret the constitution and to say through fairly you know, torturous at times legal reasoning, they say, well, see that first bit in the constitution? It says aspiring to an international order based on peace and justice. What that means is a UN-centred order. And the UN says, we have a right to defend ourselves. The UN Charter says in Article 51, all states have the right to defend themselves. So by kind of making that connection, which itself is fairly, I think, not quite the spirit of Article 9, but it says all states have the right to defend ourselves. We're in part of this system, so we have a right to defend ourselves. If we defend ourselves, we need weapons to do it, and then you can take these steps. The key thing is that rather than having legislation, the decision to reinterpret it, the courts have decided to step away from that and not take part in that in the way you might expect a kind of constitutional court to do so. It's defaulted into the hands of this cabinet secretary, and they interpret the constitution and then have this sort of sit down and go, okay, what we think this means now is the following activities are then allowed. And up until last year, what's been allowed has been very, very narrowly defined so that Japan can use force to defend the territory of Japan, the Japanese people, when they're being directly attacked. And that's it. Yeah. So that's the reasoning behind all this military spending that they've had in the past and the establishment of, sorry, what's it called? The self-defense force. Is the, the self-defense force. the euphemism force. for the army or the defense, yeah, for the military. But calling a spade a spade, it's an army. Three bits is an army, a navy, and air force, which, yeah. are, which are rather unimaginably called the air self-defense force, the ground self-defense force, and the maritime self-defense force. But under the enforcement of Article 9, they can't be deployed overseas, can they? They're just defense. Absolutely. And, and up until this reinterpretation of July 1st last year, that was very strict. And, and not only could they not be deployed overseas, and this was what caused some tension, is that they couldn't even help the Americans their allies, an ally that has very significant military presence on Japan or on Japanese territory, they couldn't even help the Americans if they're involved in some other conflict, even just to refuel them. So let's say the US and China are duking it out over Taiwan, not too far from Japan. The Japanese Self-Defense Force was not allowed to do anything to assist the United States in any capacity. So now with this reinterpretation, they could... Yes. There's a potential to send your troops overseas because you are protecting your interests or your allies' interests. Yeah. So there's two big things. The principal point around this reinterpretation is to say self-defense should also mean not just the narrow defense of ourselves, but participation in collective self-defense. So that's to say we can work with others to defend ourselves. The idea was basically... One that the Americans have been pushing for a while, which is to say, you know, you guys should be able to do a bit more to help us and to help our collective efforts, whether it's in your own defense or in what we're trying to achieve in Asia. 
to which the Japanese would say we can't. You know, we, we, we are constitutionally forbidden from doing this. Oh, and by, don't forget, America, you wrote this constitution and you forced it upon us at the end of the Second World War. But that's, that's sort of by the by. That was seen, certainly by Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister, as both embarrassing and also demeaning. So it was something that was a bit of an embarrassment that a country that's the third largest economy in the world is dependent in, and cannot contribute to upholding regional security, seeing off a Chinese threat, or can't help your friends, you can't help your allies. And the other is, you know, threats to Japan in a globalized world can emanate from a distance a long way away from Japan. So that Japan should be in a position to see off acute challenges to itself even if they're not happening by Navy landing troops on the islands or, you know, so that if there's a missile attack that's coming from North Korea or if your citizens are being threatened or kidnapped or having their heads cut off in, in the Middle East under from ISIS, which is what happened to one guy last year, then the Japanese Self-Defence Force should be able to take some steps. And so that, that triggered a sense of, okay, well, just what can we do? In one hand, you've got the US being a slightly demanding ally then. And I guess you can see that they've always been that way post-World War II because Japan is a helpful buffer between them and the Soviet Union. But you've also got the Japanese being maybe slightly a bit antsy about, for example, China activity in the South China Seas. Yeah, and, and not just the South China Sea, but in the East China Sea. So yes. The islands the Japanese call the Senkakus and the, the uh, Chinese call the Yautai. Plus, you've got this political leadership under Abe, which is nationalist, which feels that Japan has been weak for too long, that it's been the shadow of the United States, and that it has been you know, sort of flogging itself with a sense of guilt that it shouldn't feel anymore, and that it should be able to behave like a state like any other. You know, and it's critics of Abe say, you know, this is the slippery slope to 1935. Redefine the constitution, and once again, you'll be marching on the oil fields of Southeast Asia. To which the sort of Abe defenders say, no, no, it's not that at all. We are a democracy, we're international rule of law, we're part of the UN, and this is about being like any other wealthy developed country that takes part in multilateral peacekeeping operations, that's an ally of the United States and others, close security partners of a range of other countries like Australia. We, the Japanese, should be in a position to carry out defence and security policy like anyone else. But two-thirds of the country thereabouts are against this reinterpretation. Mm. There's going to be a danger in politics moving too far away from the will of the people, isn't there? And Abe is paying that absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no question that what he has done in reinterpreting the Constitution this way is not popular. I think he's been surprised by that. He is, in the Japanese context up until quite recently, a very successful prime minister. You know, there was a period, a long period in the 90s of what's come to be known as the kind of karaoke prime ministership. You know, everyone had a go. He stayed, I think the average length of time was sort of 14 to 18 months, which incidentally Australia is now sort of echoing. Whereas Abe has had a sustained period. He's won a re-election. So 2013, he called a snap election late last year. When he didn't need to, he won re-election. He doesn't have to face the polls in the lower house for a few more years. Like politicians who get voted in largely because of the disarray of the opponents, not because of the mandate for themselves, they tend to not quite be able to disconnect that. They tend to be a bit hubristic and they sort of read the message as the way they want to read it. And he goes, oh, we've, you know, I've been talking about this stuff for a while. They voted for me. Therefore, they must like this. And what we've found is 
But firstly, with the issuing of the reinterpretations that happened in July last year, opinion polls dropped. Then he introduces the legislation in April for the first time, or sort of it's released. Opinion polls dive again. And then September of 2015, he pushed the legislation through the parliament. He's in the 30s or below the 30s. So it's, you know, and I was talking to a colleague from ANU yesterday who, who's a very close watcher of Japanese domestic politics. And I said, how's Abe looking? And they said, well, if the LDP can find someone to push him out, they will. Yeah. The problem is that at the moment there doesn't look to be that. And he's plainly overplayed his hand so that while it may be that the region is more insecure, while it may be the US wants them to do more, clearly the electorate is not supportive of this more expansive vision for what Japan should be doing militarily in the region. With a very active and long-established defence force quotation fingers, the change in how Article 9 is being interpreted and just a general right-wing politics kind of drive, this is a kind of pacifism that Gandhi would find shocking. Is it fair to say that Japan have never really been a pacifist society? Yeah, I, I certainly think, you know, if you were to take political theory 101 class and, and have a definition of what pacifism is, Japan would never tick that box yeah. um, at, at really any point since the Second World War, maybe in the first couple of years, but by the early 50s, after the um, Korean War, and we suddenly realised, you know, communism's on the march and Japan really needs to be in a position to, to literally defend itself. From there on, you know, you're not a pacifist society in any sort of proper sense of the term. But I, th- I think it's become a shorthand to refer to a widely accepted sense in Japanese society that they don't want to be militarily like anyone else, that they want to be a civilian power. Yes, we can defend ourselves, do so to a very high degree of technological sophistication, But at the moment, there is no appetite in Japan to become a country like the United Kingdom or France. And that's often held out as the kind of path that someone like Abe wants to take Japan down. That's to say, a country that's large, has a big defense force, that's independent, that can project force at considerable distance, that has nuclear weapons, hugely controversial in Japan, but that is also an ally of the United States. And I think that's something where often left critics of Abe kind of let the analytical, you know, house down because they sort of go, all of that is militarism on on the rise. And I don't think under any circumstances Abe envisages a future, you know, if the fairy godmother dropped out of the sky and said, Shinzo, you have, you know, three wishes, what will they be? None of those would be, you know, let's go back and replay the 30s. But they would be a Japan that looks and acts and behaves and has a competence militarily on the international stage that's more like Britain. The problem is, as you said, you know, there's just no public appetite for this. A, it throws all of this culture on the past, and B, it's sodding expensive. You know, if they were to do that, it's going to cost an enormous amount of money. And P.S., the Japanese economy has the highest debt-to-GDP ratio of any developed economy in the world. If this is a move that Abe feels comfortable with making, why is it counting against him then? Why is it something that he's gone on with despite public opinion? Well, I think he thought at the start, and probably continues to do so, that history was working in his favour. So there's long been thought that, essentially, the further you got from 1945, the greater level of indifference with war, indifference with the sort of pacifist sentiment. As you get further from that, as it recedes from living memory, so the thinking went, you would get reversion to the norm, if you like. And then when you add to that, a China that's threatening, a North Korea that's threatening, and all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, I've been to Japan 
shortly after North Korea's launched missiles into the Sea of Japan, and people are like, you know, they're genuinely jittery, you know, because if if the missiles come flying over, you know exactly where they're going. Mm. But all of that, the experience so far is it's not moving people. The underlying sentiments in Japan do seem to be so far no more. If Abe persists in this, and I think he's going to, partly because he sort of has to, he, he has positioned himself domestically as the strong man, and the strong man who backs down is, you know, is a dead duck politically. But if he persists with this, I think he's going to go down the political gurgler, and I think that's that plus the fact the economy isn't recovering in the way in which it needs to to give him the political capital to do all of this, then I think he's probably on borrowed time. That's all the time we have for the podcast. Thanks for your time today, Nick. Pleasure, man. And if you'd like to follow Nick Bisley on Twitter, he's at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.